0: As many of you know, we have seasons in this church where we want to put our missionaries in front of you so you can know them and pray for them and this is the Olsons are some examples of that. I said in the first service that it, when, when I was a candidate for this job, one of the things that, that caught my attention was the, the global footprint of a church this size. This, the missionaries are all over the place, and they're not just people that we found to support. All of our missionaries were members here, and that wasn't by design. It just has happened over the years. And so we want you to know our missionaries. We want you to be able to pray for our missionaries, and so that's why we have them in this season reading, uh, reading the Scripture each Sunday. I'm really not used to the first service being the, the, the larger service. I don't know what's going on here, Brian, but I thank you for being so willing to be this close to me. Um, it's it's funny, anyway, okay. So before we dive in and before I digress more, um, I, I do want to have a one, and I usually don't have announcements here, but this is that important. Every year we have what's called a missional survey. It's a 10 minute survey, it's a Google form, Everybody who gets the emails, the church emails, will be getting one today at 1230. And this is a, a year away, year after year, we ask the same questions and we're, we are then able to know what's going on in a church, how we're changing, what we need to do better. And so it's kind of this missional progress that, we, that we're able to see and hear and understand tangibly. So would you fill that out? And so I'll tell you, in two Sundays, we're gonna have a time at the end of the service where if you haven't filled it out, you have to sit and fill it out and spend 10 minutes not talking to people. You don't wanna do that. Just go ahead and fill it out. So in two weeks, you can just be free to do whatever it is you want to do. But please, please fill it out. This is a really helpful thing for us as we lead this church to to know what God's doing here um, in an even more clear way. All right. So Acts chapter 14, we are continuing to walk our way through Acts as we do every August to Advent and wherever we finish off, we pick up the next year. And in this passage, I I was looking at it this week and I was just really, I kind of had this sense of awe, of all that has happened in the early church in really basically 10 years or so in terms of the spread of the gospel throughout the empire. And I was just, I was just kind of thinking about that. It hit me this is the main point of the text. This is what this is about. You have Paul and these missionaries who have been gone for a year. They come back to the church in Antioch and they're reporting what has happened over the last year. So you might call this the first missions report or the first missions conference that we know of in the early church. And I love the way that this church comes together. This is the whole church. The word whole isn't in the passage, but but the clear reading of the text is the whole church comes together. These aren't some missionaries going and just talking with the missions committee or something. It, 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 this is the whole church coming together to hear what in the world has happened over the past year with these people. In the anticipation, you can feel it. It would be like I would imagine when some of the early explorers would come back, Columbus, Magellan, Lewis and Clark, and there was no email or phone. I mean, you literally had no idea what they had been doing these this past months or years. And so, there was this great anticipation of what has happened. And so, Paul and his companions are here at the church in Antioch. They're sending church. And I will… I love how Paul, excuse me, Luke records Paul's words. He doesn't come back and say, "Hey guys, look at all that we've done. Look at the progress we made." Paul says, "Look at all that God has done through us." You know, you think about the past couple passages on this journey of the miracle of the man in Leicester being healed. You have Paul who was stoned to death and manages to like walk it off. Is the best way I know how to read the passage. You had the conversion of the Roman proconsul in Cyprus. You had Paul confronting the magician whose name was Bar-Jesus and he calls him Bar-Devil. I mean, a lot has happened. They're coming back and they could, they could have very easily just said, look at all we've done but they don't want to receive the attention and the glory. They know how things work and they say, look at all God has done through us. Because at the end of the day, this is the Lord's work. This is God's mission. He created the idea for mission, not us. It's His plan, it's not ours, and it is ultimately God who is going to make this thing happen. Because we can't cause people to repent of their sins. We can't change hearts. We can't even make somebody see Jesus as desirable. And this isn't a niche kind of theology here by any means. This is, this is orthodox teaching on the part of the church for 2000 years. We know that we are, our plight is so bad. We are so ravaged with sin in every faculty that we have that we don't even possess the ability to see Jesus as our answer. The Holy Spirit must overcome our unbelief in some way. Now, how he does it, that's, large, that's been hotly debated for 2,000 years. But everybody agrees. The Holy Spirit has to uh, overcome our unbelief in some way. And Paul clearly understood this. He comes before them and says, look at what God did. We may be the sovereignly ordained means that God chooses to accomplish what He does, but it is God's work that Paul and his friends are reporting on. And they largely report two things, how God opened a door to the Gentiles and how they then strengthened the churches. Those are the two things in this passage, so that's what we're going we're to look at and flesh out. So first, how God opened this door to the Gentiles. And I want to camp out on this just a little bit this morning because it is good news that God opened the door to the Gentiles, successfully grafted them into the church. It's certainly good news for me. My history is Gentile, as most of the people in this church are. So it's great news. But this decision by God to open the door to the Gentiles, to use Paul's words, it created a lot of problems in the church, it created a lot of challenges in this church. Because at this point in the text, there's still this looming question where everywhere that the gospel has gone, you know, we saw Jews come to Christ, but now we're seeing Gentiles come to Christ, and there's this big debate as to whether those new Gentile Christians need to first become fully Jewish. Do they need to take on the Jewish customs? Do they need to obey the law? And specifically, do they need to be circumcised? Or do we just skip all that? And, and, create, and do something totally different? That's the, the question that's being debated, and it's so big that you're gonna see next week that it merited Paul and all the other leaders from all the other churches l- coming to Jerusalem and what we now know as the Jerusalem Council to figure this issue out. So we're gonna do that next week, but what I want us to see this week is how deep this divide is, what paved the way for it, and how this divide still exists today. And I do want to be clear. These tensions that we're going to see happened because God decided to open the door to the Gentiles. So what was a cultural issue then became a theological issue because you have all these new this this whole new culture coming into the church. And I think it's easy for us to think like that, you know, we look at the text, it was just some random few people who couldn't figure this out, but then Paul, he went and he sorted things out in Jerusalem and then it's not a problem for the church anymore. That couldn't be farther from the truth. That's not the case at all. The issue is so deep that even Peter fell prey to it. You may remember in Galatians chapter two, Paul is talking about, at this church in Antioch sometime around this time, that's a little bit debated, but this church that we're seeing in Antioch, Peter and some people from Jerusalem came to Antioch and all was good until... James came. This is James, the brother of Jesus, the apostle James, with some other people called the circumcision party. You see, what they're, they're wanting these Gentiles to become Jewish first. They came, and then all of a sudden, Peter decided, I better not eat with these Jewish Christians anymore, or these Gentile Christians anymore. I'm just going to eat with the Jewish Christians. And so he's falling back into that same pattern. He, he's, he's making this cultural distinction between them. And if that weren't enough, Paul, again, Galatians 2, says that even Barnabas was then led astray. So these are all the main leaders in the church, and so Paul has to stand up in Antioch in front of the whole church, call Peter out, and tells him, you stand condemned for what you're doing. You're a hypocrite, and your conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. And we don't just see the issue there, we see it all throughout the New Testament, In both Galatians and Colossians, Paul says, There is now no Gentile or Jew. There is no Greek, sorry, there is no Greek or Jew, free or slave, male or female. All are one in Christ Jesus. To the Corinthian church, Paul says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Can you see a pattern here in Paul's ministry? The whole Letter to the Romans was written for this purpose. We can think that the letter to the Romans was was, was Paul's systematic theology. That's not what it is. There are Gentiles, Christians, and Jewish Christians in Rome, and they cannot get along. And Paul is writing the whole letter so that they will get along. Because what happened, you had the emperor Claudius who banished all Jews from Rome. It didn't matter if you were Jewish Christian or not, you were banished. Interestingly enough, Priscilla and Aquila were some of the banished Jewish Christians. That's how they met the apostle Paul and others. And after three years, these, uh, Claudius died, the Jews were allowed to come back, and the Jewish Christians came back to their old church, but it felt really different. It was culturally Gentile. And they didn't like that. They wanted it to go back to the way it was. And the Gentiles liked the way that it was. And so there's this division. And if you read Romans, it's easy to see if you look for all the places that Paul says, now to the Jews, now to the Gentiles, now to the Jews, now to the Gentiles. Paul's not making some esoteric academic argument, he's talking to the Jewish and Gentile Christians in this church. Get along. And it's not just for your good that you do, Paul at that point is wanting the church in Rome to be his new sending church over to Spain and he knows that a divided church is not going to be a sending church. So you see it all over scripture and you can see that it goes far deeper than just circumcision. That's that's gonna be the presenting issue in the next chapter but it goes deeper. And so on one hand, we can look at the divisions in our church today and, and note this is not new. This has been here for a long time. We can receive a little grace in that, in the divisions that we see, but we also have clear commands in the New Testament about how the gospel applies to and resolves these kinds of things, cultural or otherwise, that divide us. Probably one of the best-known stories in the gospels, I would guess, is the, the story of the Good Samaritan. So, the Good the good Samaritan, the the, the idea of a a good Samaritan would have been an oxymoron to, to the people who Jesus was talking to. They would think there's nothing good about a Samaritan. They weren't seen as good. They weren't seen as righteous because the Samaritans were Jews who had disobeyed the word of God by intermarrying with their Babylonian captors and modifying their worship against the way that God had prescribed worship to go. So nothing about the culture that Jesus is speaking to would have thought the Samaritans are good. I'm gonna read a little bit of the story in Luke 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up. Of course, it's a lawyer. A lawyer stood up to put him to, I'm sorry if you're a lawyer. I'm sure you're a great, I'm sure you're really nice. All right, let me start over. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And here's where I want to focus. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? But, but who is my neighbor? He, he, he saw the implications where Jesus is going that these Samaritans can't possibly be his neighbor. So seeking to justify himself, seeking to feel more righteous about who he is and who they aren't, he pushes. That's the heart of all these, that's the heart of the issue in our passage, that's the heart of what is at play now that God has opened the door to the Gentile world. It's, a, it's an age old problem, but it's manifesting itself in a new way here. The problem is that we want to justify ourselves. We know that there's something wrong with us and so we seek justification in our natural state in all the wrong places. We're gonna look for ways to feel like we're better than the people around us. We're going to do the same thing that this lawyer is doing by looking to justify ourselves. That's exactly what Peter did. He was seeking to justify himself, Paul says, out of fear of the circumcision party. He wanted to be seen as justified. He wanted to be seen as righteous in their eyes, so he made that shift. And I do think this is a lot of the reason that our our country has experienced so many divisions and polarizations in these past few years, And, and it happens when you have an issue that is either cultural or let's just say the application of wisdom on which we we can and should be able to disagree on, but all of a sudden it becomes a moral issue, an issue that makes me better than you, or you better than me. And so there's some easy ways to see it. I'm not trying to stoke any old fires, but like 20 years ago, it feels like we could more amicably disagree on who to vote for. You know, it was an application of wisdom. We may not agree, but it's okay. We agree on the big things. Now it feels like a moral issue. I mean, you have people, on, the Christians in the church, saying you are immoral if you vote for the other guy, whoever the other guy is. It's gone from a wisdom issue to a moral issue, then, it's a, then it becomes an issue of justifying ourselves, or masks, and I, ho- I hope enough time has passed that I can say this, but we're, we're doing our best. We're doing our best on issues of wisdom to make decisions for the whole church, But on the extremes, and I'm talking about the church in general, on the extremes, it became a moral issue. Like, you're you're immoral if you don't wear a mask because you're spreading the virus, or you're immoral because you are capitulating to a heavy-handed government. Well, then that, that, going from a wisdom issue to a moral issue, it just divides us immediately. And the same thing is happening here. God opens the door to the Gentiles, which is a beautiful thing but it did not happen without challenges and challenges that we still experience today because we desire to justify ourselves. We look in all the wrong places, but the answer to our search for justification, whether we are a Christian or not, is the same. The answer is Jesus. Jesus who went to the cross to die for the penalty of our sin so that we can be justified in the eyes of God because he has handed us his righteousness. When we as a church feel and talk about and emphasize the way that we are truly justified, then the natural effect is that these other pursuits for justification, while we can and should still have strong opinions on things, they don't divide us in the same way the same way that it did the early church, the same way that it does much of the church today. And our search for, if I could state it in the other way, maybe this is the negative, our search for justification, our search to justify ourselves on these cultural issues, it can show us the degree to which we don't really understand the way that Jesus has ultimately justified us. One of the great privileges that I have as a pastor, and and particularly a pastor of this church, is that I get to meet with missionaries when they're back in the United States. In the past two weeks, I've gotten to have meals with two different missionaries, and over the past three years, there's been a universally common statement among all the missionaries that come back and I get to hang out with, and that statement is, is something like, I'm baffled by the way the American church is being divided right now. Just, it, it baffles me that that this happens here, and some people would say well they they're just they they're detached from American culture, they don't understand it you know because they've been gone so bless their hearts, they're just not gonna get it. I think it's actually the opposite that's happening. Because these missionaries have been in other cultures and they've seen the way the gospel has united people that humanly speaking should never be united and they've seen communities flourish, they have higher expectations of us. And so they come back and they will say things like, I lament the the shallowness of the American church and the ways that they seek to be justified in other areas. So what can we do about this? We can't all become missionaries. be cool if we could. That's not, that can't happen. But we actually do see the answer in our text. In, In what they're reporting, in the ways that they strengthen the church is the answer to how we heal much of the division that we're experiencing, the challenges that we're experiencing in that same area because God has opened the door to the Gentiles now. So, he strengthened the churches. Here he reports how they have strengthened the churches. Verses 21 and 22. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. And we see that they did three very specific things to strengthen them. And the first is by spending time discipling them. Now, there's something very interesting to me about how about what they do in this first missionary journey and I, I had a i pulled something offline you can see this is a map of their first missionary journey they start in antioch you can see they went all the way over to derby and then they turn around and they go back to antioch well when they were in derby where what was the next closest city <laughs> yeah if they if they were, yeah they they, could, they were real close to tarsus who's from tarsus paul's from tarsus he's right next to his home I mean, he would, it would be like if we were on some missions team that was sent out from Dallas, Texas, we made it all the way to Ocala, hadn't been in Orlando in over a year, and then turn around and go back. Not because we want to. So Paul undoubtedly has friends, family in that city. He could have had a nice place to stay. He would have, could have been comfortable. But instead, he sacrifices that to go back and invest in these new churches, So it says something about the sacrifice necessary if we are going to be a church that does the same, that invests in new churches and younger believers. And it goes two ways. All of us should have somebody who's investing in us you know, somebody that, that, that we're growing from, maybe when missionaries come back, some of you might have the opportunities to spend time with them. But all of us also need to be spending time with younger believers. They may, they may be younger than you or not, but they're less mature in their faith so that we can strengthen them and build them up. And that takes time. And if there's a greater casualty to American culture than time, I don't know what it is. Time is something that the average American has very little of. The average Westerner is just a Western issue. I remember uh, my dad told me that when the concept of email came out and, and started to make its way through the large bank that he worked in and his business friends and associates, the, the common question is, what are we going to do with all our extra time? We're gonna finish our job at lunchtime. Like we won't have to walk down the hall or drive across the city. I mean, well, I don't even know what we'll do. Maybe weekends will be Thursday to Sunday. We're just gonna have so much time on our hands. Well, what happened? The exact opposite, because now that we were always accessible at every moment, in every place, to every person. We got busier than we've ever been. And then you add to that the craziness of kid schedules and kid sports and the, the money available for leisurely activities, the mental health issues that have risen through that. And we, have, we feel like we have no time, certainly not time, to be carving out to invest in younger Christians. Well, Saul, sac- Paul sacrificed to be able to go back and invest in these churches and the same thing is needed and true for us. All right, so what did they do with this time that they invested in these young believers? This is the second way they strengthened the church. They encouraged them to continue in their faith. This is the rest of verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Remember who he's talking to. These churches, these are young believers who who have seen Barnabas and Paul violently assaulted. The persecution that we know that the missionary team went through—that's the the context in which these churches are planted and trying to grow now. So we have to assume the same kind of persecution would be on them as well. And so Paul wants to make sure that they continue in their faith. And it's interesting to me. Paul didn't go. What what Luke records is not that Paul went back and and reminded them all of the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, which is a Biblical teaching where it's true and it teaches that all those who have saving faith will continue in the faith. I think about Jesus' words. He says, he, he holds us in his fist and no one is going to snatch us from them. There are two things we can do with this doctrine. But what, what Saul doesn't do is finish going through those churches and then just throw up his hands and say, well, we'll see whose faith is real. You know, he uses the truths of God's activity in the mission to go back and tell them because of this foundation and this motivation, now you have to continue in the faith. You need to persevere. You need to work hard at this, trusting that God is going to hold on to you. There will be There will be persecution, there will be tribulation for anyone who comes into the faith across the span of space and time. That is universally true. Some will experience persecution from unbelieving parents. Some will experience persecution from unbelieving children. Some will lose friends over your faith. Some will lose jobs over your faith. Some of you, if you desire to run for office, you will lose an election because of your faith in Jesus Christ. But in the words of the great theologian, the Mandalorian, this is the way. (laughs) This is how it is. Uh, uh, A slightly more legit theologian in a commentary I read this week said, no cross, no crown. That's, That's the Christian life. Suffering with Jesus and suffering for Jesus is going to create difficulties for us. We bear crosses because we believe that Jesus went to the cross for us, that's how it is. It's just assumed in the New Testament and not just assumed, it's explicitly said in the New Testament and assumed in everywhere it's not explicitly said. And so we have to assume that the same is gonna be true for us. And so I do want to, if you were a student this morning, so now with the shift, most of the students are in the first service, but if you're say, let's say between fourth and 12th grade, all right? Fourth and 12th grade. I want, I, want, I want to talk to you just for a minute because that season of life is as hard or harder than any of the rest of us deal with because you're just now going into an environment where your parents aren't watching you all the time. You know, you, you, you can make decisions to follow Jesus or not to follow Jesus. You have that option. And if you choose to follow Jesus, that is going to create difficulties in your life. Because when we choose to honor Jesus in, in all these decisions outside of the protection of our parents. To people who decide not to, it's like putting a spotlight on their decision-making process. They're not going to like to be reminded that they're living the way that they are, so there will inevitably be backlash on you. That's how this works. And, and it's harder at your age because you're experiencing it for the first time and it feels more intense. You live a little longer and, and we, we, we've gotten used to this but you need to know that deciding to live for Jesus and honor him in every area of your life, it's worth it because it's there that you are going to experience Jesus in a more significant and personal way. He blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake and it's in that space that he uses us to help draw your friends closer to him. So it's worth it but I want you to hear me say that it's hard. I don't care if you go to a Christian school or a homeschool co-op, this is going to be hard for everybody. So through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What are we as a church doing to enter into those tribulations for younger believers? In church plants, church plants overseas, there are things we can do to enter into that the way that Paul and this missionary band is doing. And then the last thing, the third thing that these missionaries did to to strengthen the churches is by going back and appointing elders in each city. So they planted the churches on the first journey. Now they're appointing elders as they go back. Verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed this, you know, this just makes sense, doesn't it? You have a a young church. They are living in heightened persecution. And and like any church, they're prone to wander anyway. So, how do you help establish them in that context? You give them structure. You give them leadership. You give them humble, faithful, Christ-like elders. That's what Paul and his companions are going back and doing. There was an interesting podcast that I listened to a couple months ago. I think it came out a couple months ago. That's when I listened to it. And it was a a podcast interviewing Tim Keller, who's a little salty in his later years. He just speaks a little more directly. and He was talking about why it is that his church plant, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, worked and why another church called Mars Hill planted by Mark Driscoll did not. And and so if you're not familiar with those names, these are basically two men who planted churches uh, that in the early 2000s were both globally influential. And now in New York City, Tim Keller has retired. The church is doing fine. In Seattle, Mars Hill no longer exists even more. It just totally collapsed and fell apart. And so Tim Keller was saying this, here's my thoughts on why this worked and that didn't. And of course, you know, after you get through God's providence and sovereignty and the power of the Holy Spirit and all that, he pointed specifically to the fact that early in the church plant, Tim Keller decided to give authority and ownership intentionally to other people, to other elders, to be able to take part in the shepherding of the flock and the equipping of the saints to make decisions that in some cases, Tim was the minority and didn't agree with, but he knew this couldn't be a one-man show. It's got to be deeper. It's got to be wider than that. And the church worked. Mark Driscoll, on the other hand, decided that he was going to consolidate power, get rid of anybody who disagreed, and, and be a one-man show, which worked until it didn't. And I think there's a picture here, something for us to understand about eldership, because no one person is Jesus. No one man is Jesus. So God has given us a plurality of elders to collaboratively pool our experiences and whatever wisdom we have to be able to collaboratively, collaboratively care for the church. And so some elders, like myself, I'm freed up financially to be able to do this as my you know, full-time job. Other elders, they have what we would call normal jobs, but our, our, our task is the same. We are tasked with equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, Ephesians 4.12, with shepherding the flock, 1 Peter 5.2. So there's like a defensive side, there's an offensive side. Paul's going back through these churches and he's giving them elders so that that church can be equipped, that it can be protected, so that they can see doctrinal deficiencies that will lead to unnecessary division among them and to make sure that they continue in the faith because this faith is going to be difficult for everyone, especially them. Now, admittedly, the uncomfortable part of this is acknowledging that we have a bunch of elders who have been believers less than one year. Yeah, and you have, you have Paul writing to Timothy and to Titus who said one of the main qualifications of an elder is that they can't be a recent convert. So how do we jive that with that? There, there are a few different opinions. W- one opinion is that, uh, that in some cases, young believers is all you have. <laughs> and so it's the exception, not the norm. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. Some compelling cases have been made to, to looking at these men and women in these contexts and said, young believers, what are you talking about? You know, back then under that persecution, it was like dog years in terms of their sanctification because of what they had to deal with on a daily basis to just stay Christian. Now, I don't know what the, what the case is, but there's a contextual. Paul is writing to more established churches, to Timothy and Titus, but I, I think there's a case to be made that those men actually weren't recent converts, converts by their context, uh, by the context by uh, in their context. So, we'll see. I don't know. We won't be putting any men forward who have been believers less than a year. I I see bright futures for some of our young believers, but that's not this year. But we do, I will say, we are moving into a season of nominating men for the offices of elder and deacon. You're going to get an email. Uh, No, that was the missional no, this is the email. Well, you'll get all this in the email. I think this at 1230 today, members of the church will get an email uh, to nominate officers. And we want to ask you not to do that hastily and not to just throw it aside, but really prayerfully consider who are the men in our church that, that God is moving in your heart to strengthen the church, to shepherd the church, to equip the church. You know, go back to First Timothy three to Titus one, read through the qualifications and see if the Holy Spirit doesn't stir up in your heart some people that you would be that you should nominate. Healthy churches are often messy churches. <laughs> That, that's just the, the truth. That, that growing churches are almost always messy churches. And in this passage and, and over the rest of 2,000 years, it's messy because God opened the door to the Gentiles. If he hadn't done that, the church would have been a lot tidier and cleaner, but that's not what God chose to do. And praise God for that fact. Messy isn't always bad. Sometimes messy is ultimately really good. Saturday morning I woke up and I was up before anybody else in my family and I was making coffee and I looked around and our house was an absolute wreck. Everything was messy. The pillows on the couch were not on the couch. The, 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 the place smelled like burnt plastic. The TV wasn't working. And do you know why that is? Because the pillows on the couch were now a fort in the den. And the house smelled like burnt plastic because we had a plastic lamp that I had glued back together after it was the casualty of a very intense indoor football game. And the TV didn't work because some of the necessary wires to make it work were in my son's room who had been sick that week. We created, when you're sick in my home, you get a TV in your room. And so the house isn't clean because we're raising children in it. One day my house will be clean. (laughs) And you know what? It's kind of sad to think about. But there's a picture here for the church. There is a type of messiness when God is doing his work through his people. There's a type of messiness that is good and right. And, you know, because this is God's work, unlike my home, the church is just not going to be clean one day. The church is not gonna be tidy and neat until Jesus comes back. Because this is the way God has ordained for his mission to continue. And so we embrace this messiness. And I do want to say praise God that he doesn't want the church tidy because I couldn't have come in. Praise God that he doesn't want the church to be tidy and clean because you couldn't have come in. And praise God that Jesus didn't look for tidy, cleaned up people when he came here to establish his church. He didn't, he didn't snub his nose at our messy culture. He entered fully into our culture to redeem messy people and pay the price that our messed up lives demands and to hand us, clothe us in his righteousness so that now in our real messes, God looks at us and sees nothing but the perfection of his son. That's what unites us. That's how we're justified. And he doesn't stop there, he continues his work in a process called sanctification where he, he begins a process of making actually true in our lives that which has been legally declared to be true and that thing is our righteousness. He's conforming us into the image of his son. He's making actually true, which is legally declared to be true, the moment we believe. And that process doesn't end in this life. It will continue until we die or Jesus comes back. But that's how committed God is to messy people. God's work is that even in the messiness that we will be growing and repenting and clinging to Jesus as the only justification that any of us have in this life. And that as that justification becomes sweeter and deeper in our souls, that these other differences that we have, they're just—they're going to pale in comparison, and we're going to be okay living in the tension of disagreeing on areas of application of wisdom, because we're united in the justification of of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I have to think that one day, one day we are going to be with Jesus, and we're going to look back at our life in this church, and we are going to, as the Apostle Paul does in this passage, look back and marvel at all that God did with us. Would you pray with me? God, we are thankful to be able to gather here today, to hear Your Word, to worship together, and we do pray that we would be a people who, in whom the depth of of the reality of our justification in Jesus Christ would go deeper and deeper and deeper and make us more loving and patient and compassionate people, both to believers and unbelievers, and that through us, your mysterious plan that our unity would communicate something about you to the world that it would happen, and that people would see this, and for them it would be the fragrance of life. We pray this for our students, we pray this for those who have transitioned fully into adult life. We pray this for empty nesters. We pray this for everybody in all the seasons that this will be true of us, that we'll be growing in all these areas. And we pray this confidently because of the sure hope of Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name, amen.